We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to episode 564 of the Barcelona Podcast, brought to you by the Blue Wire Podcast Network. I'm Hilton, and as promised, today's show has nothing to do with the current season. Well, maybe a few through lines on the past for the present. But on Sunday or early Monday, you can expect things to go back to normal with the Athletic Club 5 headlines. In the meantime, maybe even save the show for some downtime, or just jump in right now and listen to it on, well, I wouldn't advise double speed if that's what you normally do with me. You might have to do this one on single speed, but you can listen to it whenever you want. Robbie and I took a deep dive through what we thought were the biggest topics in Barcelona history. Robbie explained to me, as we were collaborating on this, the concept of the iceberg, which usually is about conspiracy theories, but there aren't really any conspiracies here. Well, actually, there are kind of some conspiracy elements down in the lower tier, so I guess it still works. But really what this is, is an explainer about FC Barcelona's history. Robbie has the first half of it for you with the topics most people know, and then I'll really be submerging you into the stuff that few people know, at least those people on the internet, and what they do or don't know about. Longtime listeners of the show will recognize most of these stories, including about Kini, Ana Maria Martinez Saji, and Jose Botermas, but there are new stories that I've never covered on the channel and will likely re-release in the future as their own stuff because... As I was writing this out and making these stories, I realized that, yeah, we don't really talk about some of these really important moments in FC Barcelona's history. Yes, this is just the audio from both of our YouTube videos, but for you podcast listeners, it's all neatly back-to-back as one big thing from Tier 1 through Tier 4. So I hope you enjoy, and I'll talk to you very soon. FC Barcelona is one of the biggest football clubs of all time, and that comes with a lot of great moments, a surprising amount of insane ones, as well as several scandals and even an assassination. From MSN to Pep Guardiola's Barcelona, past the 2009 Champions League mess and Messi's napkin signing, all the way to the fight that ended Maradona's Barca career, this is the FC Barcelona iceberg. In partnership with Dan Hilton from the Barcelona podcast, I've put together some of the craziest stories and most incredible moments from Barcelona's very long history. So sit back, relax, and let's talk Barca. Now, there were a ton of different topics that we could have covered for this video, and I'm sure we're going to miss some of them. So let us know down below if there's anything that you want us to include if we do an addition to to this iceberg. But I thought to start with none other than the greatest attacking trio in FC Barcelona and probably world history, Messi, Suarez, 
and Neymar. I really don't think you can speak about Barcelona's recent history without mentioning these three players, but the way they came together is pretty interesting to say the least. Coming into the 2013-14 season, Messi had already cemented himself as one of, if not the best player in the world. Three Ballon d'Ors, about to win his fourth Ballon d'Or, six La Liga titles, and two Champions League trophies with pretty much a different front three each season. However, Barca wanted to surround La Pulga with other special talents that summer, and where better to go than Brazil to do so, where they could find one of the most exciting and promising players in the world. So 88 million euros later, Neymar Jr. was a Barcelona player. However, the team was not perfect yet. It wasn't there, and you could tell. They lost the league title race to Atleti, and they were knocked out by them in the Champions League as well. The side needed more, and so they took advantage of the four-month ban on top of Luis Suarez's head for biting Chiellini and signed him. The rest is history. In their first season together, the trio won the treble and created a relationship that is seldom seen in today's footballing world, or at least in today's Barcelona. Though those three South Americans were only together for three years at Barca, they will live on forever in Barcelona history. Goals, magic, and excellence, they all combined incredibly well and complemented each other's abilities perfectly. There will probably never be a better front three, and that's why I believe that is the best trio in footballing history and the best place to start this iceberg because Barcelona would not have won that last treble without them and who knows where they would have been if they didn't make those signings all the way back then. Now, if you love MSN, check out this poster I made for them on my website, roludesigns.com to show your support for me and to help out the channel. But if it wasn't for Messi, this whole MSN would never have came to be. And if it wasn't for a napkin and one of the greatest scouts in Barca history, we would have never gotten him in the first place. Thanks to the keen eye of one Josep Maria Minguea, the same man who's partially responsible for the signing of another diminutive Argentinian who was pretty good with his hands, the 13-year-old Messi from Rosario got a chance at a trial at FC Barcelona. However, despite the high praise from Minguea, the Barcelona board were just not convinced. Minguea had been connected to the transfer of Raquelme, which had failed a few years earlier, and the ending to Maradona's transfer was such a disaster as well, and so they weren't very trusting of his words. So, Minguea took it into his own hands to make sure Messi came to Spain, and he paid for Messi and his father's flight himself. However, when he finally got to Barcelona, not everything was magical, and in fact, more problems were arising, because Messi's talents were not only on display for Barcelona, but now for every single scout in Spain. After Messi performed well in a friendly for the team, the Barcelona board was, guess what, still not convinced by Messi, and they were still dragging their feet. However, Minguea was able to convince another man in Charlie Rusak to take control of the signing of Lionel Messi. Despite him not getting the green light from the Barcelona board, Rusak took the Messis out to lunch at a tennis club and secured the signing of Messi's future on none other than a napkin that they had found at their table. Now, you'd think the infallibly binding legal nature of a napkin would have sealed the deal. However, Jorge Messi still wanted some more for his son, as you would expect, but the Barcelona board weren't 
giving it. And this is where our third player in the story comes in, Johan La Cueva, who, as a director general of Barcelona, had a little bit more power and a little bit more money, and was finally able to convince Jorge Messi to stay in Barcelona by paying for Messi's first few doses of growth hormone. That kept Messi in Barcelona long enough for the Barcelona board to be convinced by this kid, finally, and everything was right in the world again. Messi was a Barcelona player, and we're here today with all that magic because of those three men that tried so incredibly hard to sign Messi on a napkin. Without them, Messi might not have been an FC Barcelona player at all. Now, it's scary to think what FC Barcelona would have been without Lionel Messi, but it's also worrying to think about what modern-day Barcelona would have been like if Pep Guardiola would have never become manager. Pep Guardiola became Barcelona's manager after only a year spent managing the B team. Today, he would have probably been considered nowhere near qualified enough to take over the reins of Barca's first teams. After all, Xavi spent two and a half years managing in Qatar, and that was one of the strongest arguments against him coming in. However, the 37-year-old Pep Guardiola at the time, only two years out from his playing days, would come in with a bang, immediately announcing upon his appointment that first-team stars Ronaldinho, Eto'o, and Deco were no longer part of his plans. The board of Barcelona showed full confidence in Pep almost immediately, getting rid of everyone he asked except Eto'o, who was allowed to stay. But the rest is pretty much history. In four years, Pep Guardiola won 14 trophies at Barcelona and created possibly the greatest team to ever grace a football pitch. That team, though filled with stars in their own right, forfeited their egos and desires to follow the instruction of Guardiola. They worked together to perfect his positional play model, where his players would use their football intelligence to create overloads on the ball, ensuring that there would always be an option to move the ball out to the wingbacks or an unmarked man in the midfield. Their perfection on the ball saw that club win two Champions League titles in four years and three La Liga titles while they were at it. However, it also created an idea, an idea that kind of doomed Pep and Barcelona at the time. See, so much perfection created an expectation of perfection, always from Pep's Barcelona. This meant that the historically toxic Spanish media and disastrously political leadership of FC Barcelona would continuously put pressure on Pep's head for every single little misstep, every lack of perfection, every not 4-0 victory. The reality was that football was changing and adapting to better counteract Pep's tactics. Teams sat back more and held a very solid shape in their own final third. That's one of the reasons Jose Mourinho's teams were so successful against Pep. Mourinho's wins, though few in number relative to Pep's, as Mourinho only won three of 15 matches against him, while Pep won seven, highlighted to sides a way to play that could be successful against Pep Guardiola teams. Now, Pep would eventually adapt to this, but all of this stress, the calls of a lack of perfection in the few moments where he faltered, weighed on him greatly and made him want to leave Barcelona. Similar to the way Xavi has done it this season, Pep came out midway through the 11-12 season and said that he was going to leave Barcelona at the end of that year. And he did. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. 
Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you think of great duos, who do you think of? Jordan and Pippen or LeBron and Dwayne Wade. I mean, I talk about basketball a lot here on this podcast, but for the Barcelona version, there's PK and Puyol or PK and Mascherano or the easy example of Xavi and Iniesta. And as you can hear from my voice, the perfect teammates aren't just professional athletes. It's cold season. I guess the flu and cold medicine, perfect teammates as well. But in this case, when it comes to growing your business, that's you and Shopify. Shopify is a global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. To be honest, I've been doing this show long enough. And as I mentioned, it's cold and flu season. You hear it in my voice, especially during the holiday season. So whenever it comes to this business, anything that I can set up and kind of have working in the background that I know and can trust is just plugging along without my attention. Those are the things that I really value at this point. So when my brain is foggy, all I can do is manage to turn on the microphone, talk to the guest, or just talk to myself and get out a piece of content. Everything else, having that all automated or working in the background, that's been important to keeping me sane. And that's the thing about something like Shopify. What I do love about Shopify is how no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. So no matter how big or small, how good of a month or how bad of a month, things are just the same working in the background. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is a global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs on every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tbpod, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash tbpod now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash tbpod. Though we still remember and highlight Pep Guardiola's years at Barcelona as the greatest years of any coach ever, it only lasted four years. But those four years were something special. However, there is one matchup during Pep's reign that I consider to be really ridiculous to rewatch today, and that was the Champions League semifinal matchup between Chelsea and Barcelona. There were outrageous calls for and against both teams in both legs of the matchup, so I thought I would let someone who was watching Barcelona at the time and living through this take it away. So, Dan from the Barcelona podcast, let's hear what you have to say about this. Hey, Robbie. So I am getting a little jealous of you getting to talk about the Guardiola teams when I lived through it as a Barcelona crazed teenager and young 20-something. People ask me who my favorite player is, and yeah, Messi has given the most moments, the highest highs. Before I get done saying Messi, 
I always make sure to say, yeah, but also Andres Iniesta and Terry Henry. And it's almost a shame that aside from the World Cup 2010 winner, the biggest Iniesta moment of all time, his other big moment, a goal against Chelsea in the semifinals of the 2009 Champions League in the 93rd minute, the goal that sent Barcelona to the final on away goals. It's remembered as much for Iniesta's moment than it is for the ridiculous number of controversies and wild refereeing that occurred. It was easily the worst night of referee Tom Henning Avrebo's career. Eric Abidal was sent off in the match to the red card, but Arebo had sided with Barcelona in some other moments that are still being talked about, especially by Chelsea fans. Did Danny Alves bring down Florent Maluda inside the box or outside the box? Did Abidal bring down Drogba? Did Gerard Piquet commit a handball? Did Samuel Eto'o commit a handball? All of those decisions went Barcelona's way. And due to this wonderful goal by Andres Iniesta, the one that I've had this poster of behind my desk for all these years, Barca snuck by Chelsea and moved on in the Champions League. Time moves moments like this down the iceberg as younger and younger fans see it as history instead of their own memories. But I'd say this is still in tier one. It had everything you'd want in a tier one story as a club defining moment. Controversy? Check. Big game stakes? Check. A legend doing a legend thing? Definitely check. And while that moment could have been very negative, the next thing that you're talking about, Robbie, is definitely negative. Doing the podcast for all these years, I always hoped that Bartomeu and the financial issues weren't going to be that big of a story. But unfortunately, Bartomeu might be a name that the casual Barcelona fans know decades from now for all the wrong reasons. Now, I've done a lot of ignoring Barcelona's financial disaster that they are in today and have been in for several years. But that is mostly all thanks to the work of Josep Maria Bartomeu. Growing up as part of the FC Barcelona Basketball Academy, Bartomeu would go on to earn a business degree and then build a pretty successful company all while growing his connections within the FC Barcelona sphere of influence. After several years of political maneuvering, sackings, allegations, firing, Bartomeu somehow found himself as the president of the club. There is just too much to go on that will make this video way too long, but just know it was a little bit controversial controversial everything that was going on and somehow Bartomeu was now the president of the entire club. All you really need to know is that Bartomeu's progression to that position of president wasn't exactly the cleanest of any president ever. However, in January of 2014, Bartomeu found himself there nonetheless. That summer, the squad would make some of the wisest signings in recent years, bringing in Luis Suarez and Ivan Rakitic, but also a certain pairing of Marc-Andre Ter Stegen and Claudio Bravo. With these reinforcements, the club would win their second treble in six years that next season and reign supreme with the newly appointed president garnering much of the glory. However, his transfer perfection and European success would end there. In 2017, PSG would meet Neymar's insane release clause and everything would go downhill from there very quickly. That influx of money from Neymar's sale would be used so poorly that the club is still recovering from those decisions today. 135 million for Coutinho, 135 million for 20-year-old Dembele, 120 million for Antoine Griezmann. Over the next three seasons, Barcelona's money was burned on transfers that reeked of a desire to fill Neymar's shoes, sell jerseys, and bring back glory. 
all while the backline and midfield began to show its age. It felt like Bartomeu threw money at any exciting forward he could and hoped to make strategic, cheap signings to fill in all of the other positions. And of course, basically none of them worked. Even when he made signings that were somewhat decent, like Frankie de Jong or Clement Lenglet, they would be offered ludicrous salaries that would eventually handicap the side in the future. His very clear failed transfer policies and failure to run the club at all, complaints from Lionel Messi, all of that would eventually catch up with him, and he would be ousted among allegations of bribery and defamation in 2020. Bartomeu made very few thoughtful decisions, electing instead to focus on immediate hopes and dreams that would never come true. Over his years at the club, he complained and complained and scapegoated others and was called out by many players at the club, one of whom may have been more victimized than any other person by the failures of Bartomeu. I don't think I have to remind anyone watching this video about what Lionel Messi meant to Barcelona. Whether you were born in 1960 or 2006, you likely got the opportunity to experience some magic from Messi. However, I see the way he left Barcelona as a huge stain on our history, and so I think it very much so deserves a spot here in the iceberg. How did Messi go about leaving Barcelona, and why? Going back to 2020, the world was in a pandemic, Barcelona lost 8-2 to Bayern Munich, and I was playing way too much FIFA career mode, all the while, Lionel Messi was very unhappy with the way the club was being managed by Josep Bartomeu. Messi tried to force his way to Manchester City, but the board refused to let him leave, and so Messi was to stay to play out his contract. Now, I can't say for certain if Messi was happy to still be playing at the club of his life or mad about the club's stubbornness, but I can be sure that he was absolutely not happy to be unable to re-sign his contract the following year and having to leave Barcelona. See, when Bartomeu was ousted as president, Joan Laporta, a previous president of the club, was put in charge yet again to right the ship and maybe more importantly than anything, re-sign Lionel Messi. But today, we know that never happened. When Laporta took charge, he realized the books were significantly worse than he originally imagined. Loans were taken out and the future of the club, for a moment, seemed to be hanging by a thread. Now, eventually Laporta and the club were able to use the loans to save the club, but that meant debt. In La Liga, financial fair play is very strict, which is meant to ensure that all clubs are run in a healthy manner. Well, to the league, FC Barcelona was like a lifelong smoker whose lungs were on its last legs so the league restricted its ability to buy SIGs in hope to prolong its life. Messi was like Barcelona's SIG. They couldn't sign him because they took out so much debt that their salary spending limit was so low they couldn't fit Messi in even with a 50% pay cut which was the maximum that he could take. It just couldn't be done. Messi was forced to leave the club in August of 2021, exactly 20 years and 9 months from the day the Argentine committed his future to the Catalan club on a napkin. However, I see no better man to move on to next than probably the only player in the club's history that can hold a candle to the legacy of Lionel Messi, and that's Johan Cruyff. Now, I didn't know a ton about Cruyff before starting this video, but I knew it was a topic that we had to talk about, and so I'm excited to cover a little bit, just a glimpse at the history of this incredible 
player. Johan Cruyff joined Barcelona in 1973 and his impact was felt just about immediately as he helped the team win their first league victory in 14 years, winning the Ballon d'Or in the same season. Barcelona before Cruyff were very messy, but after Cruyff, both as a player and as a manager, in fact, the club drastically changed. There were a lot of moments that I could have talked about to exemplify what Cruyff meant to Barcelona and what Barcelona meant to Cruyff, but I think that none are probably better than the day he almost got arrested after receiving a red card on the pitch. 1975, Barcelona vs Malaga. The Franco-Spanish government is still in full effect, and for you youngsters, that pretty much means biased against anything that has to do with Catalonia, a state firmly against Franco's government. FC Barcelona and Johan Cruyff at the time were very well versed in mistreatment by this government and poor refereeing against them and potentially rigged matches. This game against Malaga was no different. During that match, Barcelona with Cruyff as their captain were allegedly denied two clear penalties and a goal that should have stood being instead ruled offside. And to make everything worse, Malaga scored a second goal on the day, one where the linesman actually flagged it for offside and the referee allowed it to stand nonetheless. Imagine that happening in today's day and age. That would probably make you pretty angry. Well, that's exactly what happened to Cruyff on the pitch that day. The Dutchman lost his mind at the ref, receiving a yellow card for dissent and then continuing on with his rampage against the injustice that he was seeing and he would be delivered his second yellow card just seconds later and descending off. At that point, Cruyff did his best Kepa Rizabalaga impression and refused to go off the pitch when he was told to. So they got the police involved, escorting him off the pitch. But Cruyff, in a last ditch effort, effort of defiance against the referee and the Franco government and whatever biases laid in that match, Cruyff kissed the Senyeta captain's armband, which was the colors that represent Catalonia, to show where his real alliances lay. Cruyff stood up for what he believed in as a player at FC Barcelona, and I can only speak about so much about him, but he had almost equally, if not a bigger impact as a coach of the squad. When the flying Dutchman came back to Barcelona as a manager, he set the club on a path to be the best in the world. Before him, the club was in debt and trouble, but under him, they won four straight league titles and the club's first European Cup. He changed the way not only Barcelona, but managers look at football today. Without Cruyff, there would have never been a Pep Guardiola or even a La Masia. Cruyff's significance is something every Barcelona fan should be aware of. But if you guys love Johan Cruyff, check out my design at roludesigns.com. We have hoodies and posters that shows off the Flying Dutchman and, you know, represents what he meant to Barcelona. And it also helps me make more videos as well. But now it's time for tier two of the iceberg and buckle up because everything kind of gets a little crazy after this point. And we're going to start with none other than probably the most hated player in Barcelona history, at least for a good portion of the fan base, Luis Figo. Originally, Figo came to Barcelona in 1995 as a sort of mistake because he intended to sign with a club in Italy and he actually did sign, but 
for two clubs. And when UEFA found out, they banned him from playing in Italy. So Cruyff, the manager of Barcelona at the time, signed him instead. In Catalonia, Figo quickly became one of the few fan favorites at the time, being just behind Pep Guardiola. And it was easy to see why. He was lighting up the pitch and competing with all of the best players in the world. Naturally, his rise in quality attracted attention. Attention from other clubs to sign him and attention from his agent to maximize his paycheck. Now, Real Madrid, even though they had won two successive European Cups at the time, they were in a bit of a crisis. And so Florentino Perez, a presidential candidate at the time for the club, promised the club something that was unbelievable, something that would never happen, right? He promised the club that they would sign Luis Figo from Barcelona. Now, for Barcelona fans, that didn't matter that much to them at the time because the Portuguese winger was clearly setting up his roots at Barca and the fans loved him and everyone thought he was pretty happy. In fact, the guy came out and said it himself on the front of a Catalan newspaper. He said Perez's words were lies and that he was going to stay at Barcelona. Well, nine days later, Luis Figo was pictured shaking hands and smiling with Florentino Perez in Madrid. Now, there's a large financial mess behind all of this that we can't be exactly sure of. There were comments from his agent saying that he made us pre-contract with Real Madrid only to use it as a bargaining chip against Barcelona, but then there was a clause in that that made them pay a certain amount. And we also can't be sure what his bonus was through all of this that encouraged him to try and sign for Madrid. However, what we can be sure of is that Madrid paid his release clause that summer and Barcelona were without their champion, the one who would go on to win the Ballon d'Or that year. And he was going to their bitter rivals, Real Madrid. In his first match back at the Camp Nou, the atmosphere was extremely hostile to say the least. Whiskey bottles were thrown at the player whenever he went to take a corner, and we have all seen the hogshead by his feet thrown on the pitch by an angry culé. Neymar leaving for a crazy fee and a ton of money may have upset some fans, but this level of betrayal is something that has never been replicated. He became the best in the world at Barcelona, and culés loved him for that. And he said he loved them back, just nine days before he would leave them forever for their bitter rivals. I'd like to say that the rest of this tier list is a, a bit brighter, but in fact it gets a lot darker and weirder and crazier. So just prepare yourself for this and let's look at the life and death of Barcelona's founder. In 1899, a Swiss footballer named Joan Gamper was making his way from France to Africa for business, but on his way, he stopped in Barcelona to meet with his uncle. And well, he never left. After falling in love with the city, he put out an ad in the local paper looking to start a football club on October 22nd, 1899. And just over a month later, on November 29th, FC Barcelona was born. And though that was a decision we are all so thankful for today, it may have contributed to Gamper ending his own life. Joan Gamper spent years as a player and president of the club until 1925 when his final term ended in significant controversy when Barca's Catalan fans booed and jeered the Spanish national anthem. Tensions were very high at the time due to the Catalonia's defiance of that dictator who in turn said that all of this mess was a personal attack by Gamper for promoting Catalan nationalism. From that point on, it seems like 
Gamper was pursued or chased out by the head of the country, leading him to losing effectively everything that he had. After being exiled from the country and from what he had built and loved in Football Club de Barcelona, he ended his life. Even before Barcelona's slogan became Mesqueun Club, you could see that there were deep roots in something that was much bigger than football within Football Club de Barcelona, and this is an example of all of that. With Barcelona's extremely long history and intense political background, it's obvious that some of these stories are not going to be the most positive, and it's the same with the next story. Sunyol. I hate to have two sad stories in a row, but Barcelona's political history is very well known by a lot of fans, but it's also very well forgotten by others. So I think it's important to emphasize it in the iceberg. Josep Sunyol is a perfect example of that. Sunyol was born in 1898 to a wealthy Catalan family. And while Joan Gamper's connection to Barca was very much so a sporting one, Sunyol was much more political. For a little bit of context, during the first few decades of the 1900s, identity with Catalonian nationalism or the Sinera colors were outlawed. And yet, Sunyol rallied his monetary influence to grow that Catalan identity in Barcelona. In 1928, he would become the director of FC Barcelona, and after creating a weekly paper that covered both politics and sport, he continued to push the idea that the club needed to combine these ideas, advocating for what he called, and I'm sorry if I butcher it, Esport Equitadania. Basically, sports should be used as the front of political and cultural activity instead of what we see a lot today where players are just expected to shut up and dribble. It was the exact opposite what Sunyol wanted for his Barcelona. He was eventually elected to be president of the club in 1935, but his tenure would sadly be very short-lived. After a trip to Valencia, the car he occupied made its way around Madrid, as it was a Republican stronghold at the time for the Spanish Civil War, where tensions were very high as the fighting had just started weeks before. Sadly, his car unknowingly entered a zone controlled by Franco's troops, and without questions or answers, let's just say they were all retired there. When word of the disaster reached Barcelona, the club was sent into dis- array and basically from that point on FC Barcelona was involved in the Spanish Civil War. FC Barcelona is unique among the vast majority of sporting clubs around the world. There just aren't that many clubs out there that have had to fight against the entire country it belongs to and where that issue, those issues still exist today. But those political differences may have come out more than ever during one of Real Madrid's biggest signings in their history, someone who changed them forever, Alfredo Di Stefano. However, I'm going to let Dan take this one because it's, it's crazy. You know, Robbie, I know we're wrapping up tier two, but in terms of what ifs and the rivalry between Barcelona and Real Madrid, all talk of Alfredo Di Stefano should be in tier one. But for Barca fans, I totally get how that's a name that they would want to forget. Because 70 years later, the story of Di Stefano's transfer is sometimes framed as Barcelona being stubborn and not sharing, as opposed to possibly being the victim of corruption. Di Stefano got his start playing for the La Maquina River Plate side of the late 40s. But due to a player strike led by Di Stefano and others, he moved to Millonarios in Colombia in 1949. Flash forward to 1952, and now here is where things get dicey. One story goes that Real Madrid president Santiago Bernabeu invited the Colombian team to a friendly in Madrid and struck a deal with Millonarios then and there in March of 1952. Shortly thereafter, Barcelona struck a deal with River Plate, 
who held the player's registration rights for when he was legally supposed to return to the Buenos Aires club. The other way the story goes is that Barcelona made the deal with River Plate first. Then when negotiating with Millonarios in Colombia, they brought Catalan Juan Busquets, who was living in Colombia at the time, to the table. Unfortunately for Barca, Busquets was a director of Millonarios' local rival, Santa Fe. When the Catalan club's offer was too low and promptly rejected, it seems that talks broke down. This is the point when this version of the story says Madrid came in and made a deal with the Colombia. Either way, the outcome was the same. Barca had a deal with River Plate, Real Madrid had a deal with Millonarios. So now at this point, Barcelona flew to Stefano and his family to Catalonia and he suited up for the club alongside Lazo Kubala for Barca's preseason. In stepped the Spanish Football Federation, however, who, in September of 1953, came to the verdict that De Stefano would play for Real Madrid and Barcelona in alternating years for four seasons, beginning with Los Blancos. And if you were confused before, this is where things get extra confusing. Barca president Martí Carreto resigns, and Barca refused the agreement, with Madrid paying Barca the 4.5 million pesetas that they had paid River Plate. Why exactly Barca couldn't reach a deal with Millonarios? Why the Federation couldn't come to a conclusion after FIFA had already agreed to the Barca and River Plate deal? Was it just pride that had Barca rip up the contract? Or was it General Franco, or at least his government, involved in getting the player to Madrid? A month later, Real Madrid defeated Barcelona 4-0, and De Stefano had four goals. At this point in their history, Real Madrid had only won two La Ligas. Barcelona had won six, and Atletico Madrid had won four. Barcelona were coming off the historic 1951-52 season that saw them win five cups. The construction of the Camp Nou was to begin the next year in 1954, and De Stefano could have helped Kubala and company make a huge splash. So to answer the question of what if Barcelona had split his time, if De Stefano had spent the following year, that being the 1953-54 season with the Catalans, who lost the Liga by five points, 46-41, to 41, they would have qualified for the first ever European Cup instead of Madrid. Yeah, the very first one, when only the top team in the league could qualify. Now it's quite a big what if for Barcelona to have won it, but the next season when the Liga was won by Athletic Club, Madrid still qualified in third after being title holders. Even with the Stefano, they finished third. The last season of that four-year agreement, the 1956-57 season, saw Madrid again top Barcelona by five points, 44-39. to And Sevilla actually finished second on head-to-head results. Looking at the history of the two clubs, maybe Barca are still largely Barca in future decades with or without the Stefano. Real Madrid, on the other hand, they may not have become the Real Madrid we know them as today. Jump on over to part two of this video to learn about the riot that ended Maradona's career at Barcelona and the kidnapping of a Barcelona player that altered the title race and the rest of this iceberg because it gets crazy and I thought that no one should handle the rest of this tier except the guy that I know that knows more about Barcelona than anyone else. So check out this video to learn more about Barcelona and I'll see you in the next one. Peace. Did you know that Diego Maradona knocked a guy out in a Barca uniform? Did you know that the Barcelona versus Real Madrid rivalry started with just one match way back in 1943? Most Kool-Aid is on the big stuff, the stuff of the iceberg that's always on social media and always right in front of your face. But the story of FC Barcelona is so much more than that. Robbie had you covered in part one of our two-part series, and he's handed over to me to handle part two. We're going to continue our deep dive into the darkness below what you think you know about FC Barcelona. And if you're new here, welcome to the Barcelona Podcast universe. Subscribe to the channel, follow the podcast, help me out on Patreon, check out the merch store, or follow me on social media. All right, let's dive in. I'm going to throw some words at you. Diego Maradona, Revenge, Kung Fu Kick, Butcher of Bilbao, Riot Police, Copa del Rey Final. Somehow that story has almost largely been lost to time. But the way Diego Maradona's Barcelona career ended is not the way that Maradona or the club would have wanted to celebrate. One of the all-time greatest players in history, Diego Maradona, He's in my top five, which is Messi, Pele, Maradona, Cruyff, and Beckenbauer, if anyone's asking. With Zidane, R9, Cristiano Ronaldo, 
Platini and Palamaldini, as well as Di Stefano being in no particular order in that next group. But that's not what this is all about. This is about Maradona's last match for Barcelona. Here's what you need to know going in. Anthony Giocochea, or the Butcher of Bilbao, broke Maradona's ankle in 1983, which, along with his bouts with hepatitis, made Maradona's time at Barcelona less than enjoyable. And Maradona held a grudge. At the Santiago Bernabeu, it was an intense atmosphere between Athletic Club and Barcelona for the Copa del Rey final. But it wasn't necessarily a contentious one between the two sets of fans. Athletic Club versus Barcelona in the Copa del Rey final in 1984, both fans actually booed the national anthem prior to kickoff. There was a shared rebellious connection between the two fan bases, and all the animosity and intensity was about who was going to win the match on the field. But unfortunately, as I already set up, any unity in the stands was not on the field. There were moments in the match that caused tension, including a tackle on Maradona's ankle and another tackle on Barcelona midfielder Bern Schuster. The match was more of a wrestling match than the beautiful game. Indica scored the only goal of the game, so the eventual winner for Athletic Club, in the 14th minute on a failed clearance from a corner. It was future Barca dream team keeper Anthony Zubizarreta who prevented Barcelona from getting their equalizer. As the final whistle sounded and Athletic Club coaches and substitutes stormed the field to celebrate, what sparked Maradona's rage is still contested. Some say that he was dealing with racist insults from Bilbao fans the entire game related to his father's Native American ancestry. And from Maradona's camp, they say that unused substitute Miguel Angel Sola used a xenophobic term and made an insulting gesture at Maradona, which on top of not getting the revenge he longed for, sent Maradona over the edge. What is certain is that Maradona headbutted Sola and the ball broke out. Maradona started punching and kicking like a toddler possessed and much, much more violent. When Sola fell to the ground, Maradona kneed him in the face and knocked him out. He was stretchered away as Maradona and Bern Schuster at the center of it all saw both teams brawling until riot police could break it up and get the Barcelona players off the field. And in the aftermath, even if Maradona wanted to stay, which with his public feuding with Barcelona president Josep Luis Nunez was highly unlikely, but after the brawl, it was no longer up to him. Barcelona was done with him. The brawl took place with Spanish King Juan Carlos and 100,000 people in attendance. And more than half of Spanish TVs were tuned in. 60 people were injured, fans threw projectiles that hit players, coaches, photographers, and others. And from a Barcelona perspective, it was a shameful event after a Copa del Rey loss. Of course, you don't celebrate that. But the big deal is that it was the last match Diego Maradona, torn shirt and all, played for Barcelona. He would go on, of course, to have great success at Napoli, who bought him for a world record fee of 6.9 million euros a few weeks later. Okay, so we did start with a pretty negative story about one of the all-time greats, but I think I need Robbie's help to bring back the positive vibes. Wait, look, everybody yelling at me, La Masia should be in the first year. I understand that, but there is so much more to the beginnings of La Masia than so many people realize. Obviously, Johan Cruyff founded La Masia, called up a skinny Pep Guardiola, and the rest is history. Right? Actually, no. Youth football at Barcelona goes all the way back to Luis de Oso, who captained a second team in 1901. From there, third and fourth teams were added, and there was always much more talk about adding more youth football. But in 1961, the same president that would become known for the Mesque Un Club motto, Enric Laudet, campaigned on a desire to create a residential youth academy. But just two years later, in 1963, financial issues, shocker, caused the club to have to shut down the residential youth academy. The building it was housed in, by the way, was a farmhouse 
La Masia that the eventual residential youth academy would be named after. But Barcelona kept trying. Jumping ahead again to Josep Luis Nunez in 1978, he pushed forward with the ideas of a youth facility yet again. And the managers of Barcelona get the credit for pushing youngsters into the first team. But it's forgotten names that deserve the real credit. Jean Villa, a man who became the director of methodology and stayed at the club until 2018, and Oriol Tort, maybe the most important scout in Barcelona's history, were all major figures in the academy's origins. In 1979, the socios finally agreed to move forward with the youth academy and it was opened in 1982. There was a major emphasis at the time to blend school and football and find a way to balance that in their childhood. Things like that are universal now, but at the time it was groundbreaking. In 1988, though they would grow to dislike each other, Nunez put Johan Cruyff in charge of the first team and he brought with him everything he learned about youth development and philosophy from the Ajax Academy team. Rinas Michels gave him many of his ideas, but Cruyff relied heavily on the work of Loriano Ruiz, who had been the juvenile A coach in 1972. Ruiz pushed for the 3-4-3 formation to be used across all the Barcelona teams, from the top all the way to the bottom. So yeah, while his ideas are tier one, the impact of Loriano Ruiz is essential to Barcelona even though his name is not well known. Cruyff built upon Ruiz's ideas and created the system that would succeed, but Ruiz still deserves credit for what he did and what he contributed to La Masia. But if we are being honest, the hardest part of the entire process is taking the ideas and creating something that you can succeed with in the first team, and that's exactly what Cruyff was able to do. Cruyff was also pretty aggressive with his promotion of young players into the first team, with the likes of Pep Guardiola and Albert Federer having significant contributions to that dream team. However, there is one young player that a lot of culés forget about or don't know about at all, but I'll let Dan handle that one. Just because La Masia came to strength in the latter half of the 20th century, that doesn't mean Barca didn't have some great young players at the start of the 20th century. I almost get a bit disappointed when Kules don't know who Paulino Acantara is. Nicknamed the Netbuster, he was Barcelona's first actual superstar. Born in the Philippines in 1896 to a Spanish military father and a Filipino mother, his father moved the family to Barcelona when Paulino was three due to the Philippine Revolution. That same year, 1899, Juan Gamper was founding FC Barcelona. The story goes Alcantara was playing for local side FC Galeno and Gamper liked what he saw and brought him to FC Barcelona. Not long after, he debuted for the first team at the age of 15 years, 4 months, and 18 days, becoming the youngest ever to score for FC Barcelona. For context, Lamine Mall was 2 months too old to break that record when he was first called up. It was also a hat trick, by the way, a 9-0 win against Catalan CS in the Catalan Football Championship also making him the first ever Asian or Pacific Islander to feature for a European team. As a teenager from 1912 to 1916, he won two Catalan football championships and the 1913 Copa del Rey. But then his family moved back to the Philippines in 1916, with Alcantara still barely college age, and he attended college to become a doctor. He played for Bohemian Sporting Club and the Philippines national team, leading them to a 15-2 win over Japan at the Far Eastern Championship Games in Tokyo in 1917. But then, in another weird twist of fate, Alcantara contracted malaria. Unrelated, FC Barcelona weren't having the success they wanted without him, and they tried to bring him back, to no avail from his parents, warned him to focus on his medical studies. But as any rational young man who loves football would do, he refused to treat his malaria unless his parents allowed him to return to Catalonia. They relented, and FC Barcelona had their star back. And unsurprisingly, the trophies returned as well. Well, not immediately, actually, because teammate Jack Greenwell was now manager. And he had the idea to put Alcantara on the back line, 
something that the socios were not too happy about. So much like his parents, Greenwell relented and Alcantara was back up top. And Alcantara's legend began to grow. Within weeks of returning, he scored the legendary police goal against Real Sociedad. Alcantara apparently smacked a shot so hard that he sent both a ball and a policeman into the net. Now, unfortunately, the truth is that the socios of the time did fib a little bit because the shot wasn't on net and no goal was given. But the policeman standing nearby was likely none the wiser after being on the receiving end of this powerful shot. He began to draw crowds that were too big for the Camp Industria, which is Barcelona's home field, forcing the club to move to the larger Le Corte, a similar story to Kubala and Camp No. Then in 1922, he got the nickname Netbuster, Trancasara in Catalan or El Romperedas in Spanish, when he tore through the net with a goal for Spain against France. Along with other legends like Josef Cementier, Emilio Sajibarba, and Ricardo Zamora, among other stars at the time, Alcantara led Barca's first golden generation, at least in my opinion, their first golden generation. They won eight Catalan championships out of nine and four Copa del Reyes. He scored 395 goals in 399 games, scoring many of those with his famous white handkerchief hanging out of his pocket. If there was one player Kool-Aid's need to know from the first 50 years of the club not named Gunpair, it's Paulino Alcantara. I'm glad we talked about Alcantara because the next guy Kool-Aid's need to know is Lalo Kubala. The guy, I would say, was the next super-duper star for the club. And he ushered in an era of winning, one season in particular Barca fans should know about. Before there was Guardiola and the sextuple, there was Barca of the Five Cups, when Barcelona won all five possible trophies between 1951 and 1952. They won the League, the Spanish Cup, the Latin Cup, and the Copa Ivo Duarte, as well as the Copa Martini Rossi. With Anthony Ramayets in net, and Gustavo Biosca leading a defense that also included a young future captain, Juan Segarra, Chechi Martin, and Josep Seguer, Barca had the joint best defense in the league, Barca and Real Madrid conceding just 43 apiece in the league. But it was the attack that led them to the titles. With Maria Gonzalvo and Andra Bosch joining the attack from the midfield, a front three of Cesar Rodriguez, Barca's second all-time scorer, Laza Kubala, Barcelona's fourth all-time scorer, and Estanislao Basora, Barca's 12th all-time scorer, they pushed Barcelona to 92 goals in 30 matches in the league, 12 more goals than anybody else. And that's because they also had some help. Eduardo Machon, Jordi Vila, and Tomas Hernandez, known as Moreno, were also major goal scorers and would have even been bigger goal scorers for any other team in the league. The Copa Iva Duarte was the competition played between the Liga winners and Copa del Rey, then known as the Copa del Generalismo. And so Barcelona was actually awarded the trophy without a match in both 1952 and 1953 because they had won the Liga Copa del Rey double. The Copa Martini and Rossi was pretty much the precursor to the Juan Gamper trophy, as it was a single glorified match between Barcelona and another European team in Barcelona. In June of 1952, Barca beat Nice 2-0, and then in December, they beat Kickers Offenbach of Germany 5-2. In May of 1952, they beat Valencia 4-2 in the Copa del Generalismo, now the Copa del Rey. The big dogs, Basora, Vila, Kubala, and Cesar had those goals in the 4-2 win. And lastly, there was the Latin Cup, which was a top European cup of the day, predating the UEFA Cup and what is now the Champions League. Barca, having qualified as the champions of Spain, won the 1952 title after a 4-2 win over Juventus in the semis and a 1-0 win over Nice in the final. Cesar Rodriguez with the lone goal in the 80th minute. The manager of that legendary Barca side was Ferdinand Dauschik, who became Barca coach in 1950 as part of Kubala's contract that brought him to Barcelona. Why the favoritism? Well, Dauschik was Kubala's brother-in-law. Kubala had married his sister three years earlier. So when Barca legend in his own right, Cementier, who at the time was the chief scout for the club, saw Kubala while he was playing for Hungaria, 
a team made up of refugees from across Eastern Europe, Sementier reportedly made the deal work through his connection with General Franco, the connection that would get him accused of being a spy during the De Stefano transfer just months later. And that, my dear friend, is a series of contradictions. But anyway, the too long didn't read for this one, Barca of the Five Cups. Kubala was really good and helped Barca get back to winning trophies after a rough time after the Spanish Civil War. This winning led to more success with the signing of the Spanish Luis Suarez and the opening of the Camp Nou in 1957. But I think it's finally time to add some color to at least some of the pictures, a lot of black and white here, and more importantly, have Robbie tell you about the kidnapping of a Barcelona player, which is a crazy story too. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Now, Dan, I know you've covered this story on your channel before, but I don't think a lot of people understand how crazy this story actually is. Just imagine a player being kidnapped for 25 days and then that kidnapping having an effect on the title race. Well, that's exactly what happened when legendary striker Enrique Kini Castro, a player from Sporting Gijón from 1968 to 1980, who's both their all-time goal scorer and their namesake for their stadium, was kidnapped. Today, he is remembered as a kind and humble man, but he has had to deal with so much adversity in his life. We're about to talk about his kidnapping, but he also had throat cancer when he went back to be sporting director at Sporting Gijón, and he even lost his brother in 1993 at the age of 42, who died while rescuing two boys and their father from drowning. This is a man who had to deal with so much more in his life than any of us can ever imagine. But what did he have to do with FC Barcelona? Well, he actually signed with Barcelona in the summer of 1980, helping them win the 1981 Copa del Rey, scoring twice against his old Sporting Gijón in the final. But that's at the end of this story, because less than three months before that, he had been held captive for 25 days. On the night of March 1st, after scoring two goals in a 6-0 win, he was kidnapped by two men at gunpoint while stopped at a gas station. The two men showed him a Colt 45 gun and then told him to get in his car and he would be followed by a van. Then he was taken into the van and a hood was put over his head. His car was left abandoned where the police would end up finding it the next day, all while Kinney was taken to a small cell under the floor in a garage in Zaragoza with his three kidnappers. His wife was left waiting for him at the airport in Barcelona, but obviously he never arrived. She had flown back from Asturias that afternoon, and when he didn't arrive, she called the police. So you know when a dog finally catches a car, but then he doesn't know what to do with it? 
That's exactly what the kidnappers were like with Kinney. They caught him, but they didn't know what to do with him. They didn't have a real plan as to how they would carry out getting the ransom or how they planned to deal with the famous man that they had just kidnapped. In reality, they were unemployed handymen, and the kidnapping was much more about getting some money than it ever was anything personal towards Kinney. And it was this poor organization that would end up being their undoing. They disagreed and balked at the ransom number, 350 million pesetas, 100 million pesetas, and it was Kinney who suggested to them to call his wife to begin the conversation of that ransom. They did threaten Kinney, but it was very empty promises. Nothing was ever executed against him, and he was treated okay. They even gave the guy sandwiches. The 25 days seemed to happen more due to their incompetence than a master kidnapping scheme. Eventually, Barca captain at the time, Jose Ramon Alexandro, delivered the ransom of 100 million pesetas into a Swiss bank account with the promise that Kinney wouldn't be harmed. When that money was withdrawn on March 25th, coupled with a lead on a van in Zaragoza, the police found the garage and Kinney's cell underneath it in the same day. Kinney, in all his kindness, didn't press charges against them, didn't claim the damages against them, and everything seemed good. Everything was moving forward for everyone except FC Barcelona, because without Kinney, the team struggled. The squad drew once and lost four times without him in it, and they fell out of the title race, finishing fifth in La Liga that season. Kinney did end up recovering, and he helped the team win the Copa del Rey, and he was actually the club's leading goal scorer by the end of that season. Thankfully, Kinney is remembered today much more for what he did on the pitch than for what happened to him in those 25 days off of it. The story is crazy and so it deserves a mention. However, we need to move deeper into this iceberg and learn a little bit more about FC Barcelona. So back to Dan to do that. Okay, so now we're entering tier four and the stories that only the hardcore Kool-Aids would probably know. And that's why I'm starting tier four talking about Jose Bautermas. I already covered him on my channel, but I mentioned him again because he was actually someone that in some ways tried to be forgotten, but I like to try to stop that from happening every chance I get. Jose Botarmas might have been the greatest scout Barca ever had, mostly because you can draw a straight line from Jose Botarmas to La Masia today. So if this is your first time hearing that name, who was he? He was brought to FC Barcelona in 1925, having been working with the Catalan Football Federation since he was 16 years old. He took over the junior system in 1934 from President Juan Coma, who would soon resign after three trophyless seasons. Starting in his first year with the club, he recruited local talent Ramon Llorens, and it worked out so well that the club made him an official scout, trusting him to literally bring in players off the street. Josep Escola, the club's 10th all-time scorer, and Josep Reich, a longtime midfielder for the club, were his first two official signings. His legacy was really written because the club was in financial trouble following the Spanish Civil War, and through so much of the 1930s through the 1970s, finding high-level talent for chief was essential for Barcelona to keep pace. If you were paying attention to Tier 3 and the Barca of the Five Cups, You'll already know the names, Basora, Bachon, Bosch, Seguer, and Segara. But after that, he also brought in Carlos Reyshak, Jose Maria Fuste, Justo Tejada, and Ferran Oliveira, as well as Elogio Martinez. And those are just some of the names. He scouted a ton of the players on the benches that filled out those rosters throughout the decades. But it was his kindness that really made it all work. He cared about not only the talent of the players, but also the intangibles too. He looked for touch with both feet and good ball control, plus how they dressed their body language off the field and on the field, and their manners. And the youngsters that fit that description were taken care of. He would take the players out to eat, he would wait for trains for them, and he would take them to fancy restaurants when they couldn't get home for the holidays. I almost consider him the grandfather of La Masia, because the threads are right there. 
Urenz, the first player he scouted, was his right-hand man for close to 40 years after he stopped playing. Escola and Josep Cementier became scouts next to him. And Ordo Tort, probably the greatest Barca scout you need to know, was under the tutelage of Josep Botermas. And Reshak, the guy who signed Messi on the napkin way back in Tier 1 with Robbie, yeah, I'll remind you again who signed Reshak. The reason he isn't remembered is because, one, there's no video, two, there's no pictures, and three, he didn't really look for the recognition, and he died out of the public eye. As players got older, Botaire moved farther and farther away from the player. He had done his job. He retired from the club in 1973 due to poor health, and the club held a tribute match for him right after they signed Johan Cruyff, and more than 80 players took part in the tribute match. Near the end of his life, he dealt with financial difficulties and died in a great deal of debt at the age of 72. A one-minute moment of silence at a youth match was the final way he was honored. But fortunately, today we have the technology and the curiosity to continue to remember him, and I hope in perpetuity. Now let's play the what-if game again, but this time down here in Tier 4. Robbie talked about De Stefano and that big what-if, but Barca could have had a much different history even without De Stefano. In the sixth season of the European Cup, Barca and Real Madrid both actually qualified. Barca as the reigning La Liga winners, and Real Madrid as the reigning European Cup champions. Barca beat Liers of Belgium in the preliminary rounds, and then they took down Real Madrid 2-2 and 2-1 over the two legs in the first round. Spanish Luis Suarez scored both goals in the first leg at the Santiago Bernabeu, and Martin Verges and Evaristo scored the goals back at the Camp Nou. A late goal by Real Madrid's Canario made it interesting, but Barca held on in front of the 90,000 fans. With those Blancos vanquished, Barcelona crushed Spartak, Kredak, Kralov from the current Czech Republic, 5-1 on aggregate. Justo Tejada had a brace, and Evaristo and Kubala scored the other goals in the 4-0 win at the Camp Nou. Then in Prague, Luis Suarez scored in the 1-1 draw. In the semis, it came down to a playoff with Hamburg. Barca won the first leg 1-0 behind Evaristo's goal at the Camp Nou, but Hamburg answered with a 2-1 win over Barca in Germany. If not for Sendo Kosciuk's 90-minute goal, Barca would have never even had a playoff. But he did, and Evaristo's goal at a neutral stadium in Brussels sent Barca to the final in 1961. What a great journey to the European Cup final it was. A story that I bet Kool-Aid would know better if the result had gone differently. In front of about 27,000 fans in Bern, Switzerland, remember, these finals didn't have the fanfare they do now, Barca fell to Benfica 3-2. Kosciuk put the Balgrana up early, but three goals from Benfica, the first from the tournament's leading goal scorer, Jose Aguas, one from an error from Barca's goalkeeper, Ramayetz, and then one from Maradel Coluna, a Portuguese legend who is the greatest player to ever be born in Mozambique, scored the third. Zoltan Zibor got one back, but it wasn't enough, and Barca missed out on European glory in their first attempt. What if Barca had won that trophy? Which would have automatically qualified them for the next year's competition. Because the next year's final? Benfica beating Real Madrid. Real Madrid would be Spain's only representative in the competition until 1966, when Atletico Madrid qualified as the Liga champions and Real Madrid qualified as, again, the reigning European Cup winners. Real Madrid would still have won some of those trophies, of course, but already having won European Cup in 1961 would have been a bit for Barcelona's history starting at that point. And this story repeated itself 25 years later in Seville in 1986. In the first round, Barca had beaten Sparta Prague 2-1 behind a brace from Paco Clos, using those away goals to qualify on aggregate after losing 1-0 back at the Camp Nou. In the round of 16, they snuck by Porto also on away goals. They won 2-0 at the Camp Nou. Marcus Alonso's dad, named Marcus Alonso, and Bern Schuster had the goals. Then a hat-trick from Porto's Yari would have been enough for the Portuguese team. But Steve Archibald's goal was enough for the 3-3 aggregate win. In the quarterfinals, 
Barca knocked out defending champions Juventus behind Julio Alberto's goal for the 1-0 win at the Camp Nou and Archibald's goal for the 1-1 in Turin to cancel out Platini's goal for Juve. In the semis, they stuck by IFK Gothenburg on penalties, and they did it in comeback fashion. An awful 3-0 loss in Sweden in the first leg meant that they needed three goals just to get to extra time, and they couldn't concede an away goal. Well, behind Pichi's hat trick, they got those three goals and forced penalties. In penalties, they went down 3-2, but made their final three as Gothenburg missed their final two, and they moved on 5-4. Even though they hadn't dominated anybody on their way there, they were still the favorites in the final against Romanian side Stau Bucharest. Led by manager Terry Venables, Barca had the better players. Captain Jose Ramon Alexanco and Migueli brought leadership to the back. Schuster and Victor Munoz in the midfield with plenty of that 80s physicality. Angel Pedraza and Marcos Alonso on the wings. And Steve Archibald up top. They were the better side, but not on that night. Unable to get a goal, the match came down to penalties. Helmut Dukadam became the hero of Seville as he stopped all four Barca penalties and the Romanian club won their first and only European Cup. But if we're playing the what-if game, losing that final might have led to the best of times. That frustration was added to the frustration that Schuster already had with multiple figures at the club, especially President Josep Luis Nunez. The players rebelled, affectionately known as the Hesperia Mutiny. Schuster went to Real Madrid after 14 of the 26 players were dismissed from the club within the next two years. And to play that what-if game even farther, do you know who Nunez brought in as that big hire to fix it all? A guy named Johan Cruyff. Down here in Tier 4, there is another name that I think Kule should know, especially as we just had Women in Sports Day last week, and that's Ana Maria Martinez, Barca's first female board director. I've also covered her on my channel, but any new Kule's who've gone on this iceberg adventure with Robbie and I should know her name too. Until Alexia Buteas, Aitana Manbani, and Mapi Leon came along, Ana Maria Martinez Saji was probably the most important woman in Barcelona's history. While she was a poet, a journalist, and an accomplished athlete, Kule should know her as the first woman to join FC Barcelona's board of directors. Her father was a Barca executive and served as the club's treasurer from 1917 to 1919. Her brother Armando was the youngest ever to debut for Barcelona until Ansu Fati and Laminia Mall. And her cousin, Emilio Sazi Barba, was already mentioned in this video as a teammate of Cementier and Paulino Alcantara. By 1913, Juan Caper had changed the statutes to include women as members due to the presence of a woman named Edelmio Calvetto, who was the first woman to become a Barca member after basically being the first woman to regularly come to the matches alongside her husband and newborn baby. Because of her, Gamper changed the rules and not too many years later, Martina Saji came along, becoming a board member at the age of 27 during the mid-30s. Martina Saji was a bit of a maverick and always willing to go against the status quo. She learned Catalan from her nanny when her parents said that it was for the lower class. She was first published as a poet at 19, writing about radical things of a time such as femininity and women's sports and women's independence. At 27, then-club president Josep Suñol, remember him from Tier 2 of the Iceberg, we are going through the history of Barcelona, he pushed her to join the Barca board and she was approved unanimously. Her first mission on the board was to create a women's gymnastics section, and she had a lot planned. But it took about a year for her patience to wear thin with the men on the board, they did not allow her to get anything done. They seemed open enough to having a woman on the board, but they weren't willing to listen to her or let her actually do anything. So even though this was her claim to fame, especially for FC Barcelona fans, it wasn't something that she was proud of or spoke about fondly. It's actually something we didn't speak about at all, even decades and decades later. Because it is at this point where her overlap with FC Barcelona pretty much ends. But I would direct you down to the description of this video to the one I already made about her life. Because her life was so, so much more exciting than that year on the Barca board. She was a famous poet in the 30s in Spain, getting national recognition. 
She was a journalist on the front lines during the Spanish Civil War, and she was reportedly sent back to Barcelona after getting shrapnel in her legs. Then she would go back to war, then get sent back, and she had the bravery or insanity, whatever you want to call it, to repeat that process. She joined the French resistance during World War II and escaped the Gestapo through the window of her apartment. She was a big deal in the perfume industry in the 1950s, and she taught as a professor at the University of Illinois in the United States. She lived out the remainder of her days in secret back in Catalonia after the death of General Franco. And those are just some of the stories that can be told about her very, very incredible life. Again, that full story is down in the description. I am getting a little cold down here because we have finally gotten to, I'd say, the bottom of the iceberg. And let's end this big two-part adventure with a story that is quite a doozy. Honestly, with the current call of controversy and referee shenanigans and corruption in the Liga, the story of Barcelona's 11-1 El Clasico loss feels a bit like it belongs in Tier 1, not Tier 4. It is, without hyperbole, the day when Barcelona began to identify as the enemy of the dictatorship, and the rivalry between Real Madrid and FC Barcelona truly began on this day. El Clasico today only exists because of that game in 1943. Without it, Real Madrid, Barcelona, Athletic Club, Atletico Madrid, the teams that have been around and played each other for more than 100 years now, those rivalries might all have the same weight. So let's set the scene. General Franco and his forces had won the Spanish Civil War in 1939, so the Copa del Rey was at that time known as the Copa del Generalismo. It was a semifinal of the competition between Real Madrid and Barcelona. Defending champions Barca had won the first leg 3-0 at Le Corte, behind goals from Valles Mas, Jose Pascola, and Sos Pedra, and things were looking good. Except for referee Fambona Fernandez, that is, who Madrid complained allowed Barcelona to be too physical and was influenced by the aggressive whistling of the Catalan supporters. The Madrid media implored Real Madrid fans to return the favor, and they did. Barcelona supporters were banned from traveling to Madrid, and in hostile territory, the Barcelona squad had stones thrown at their bus the moment they left their hotel. Maria Gonzalo said that five minutes before the game had started, our penalty area was already full of coins. The Barcelona captain for that match, Francisco Calvet, said they were shouting, Reds, Separatists, a bottle just missed. So Pedra, that would have killed him if it had hit him. It was all set up. Intimidation is one thing, but clearly this was another level. Real Madrid went up 2-0 by the 28th minute, which isn't that crazy, and a third was scored, which led to a red card for Benito Garcia. Calvet, after the match, called it a completely normal tackle. At this point, Real Madrid says that Barcelona got a bit demoralized, and they made it 8-0 by halftime. Two other Madrid goals also being called offside. Three more goals came in the second half for Madrid, and Marino Martin scored a late one for Barcelona to prevent the shutout. Was Real Madrid really that good? They would lose the final to Athletic Bilbao in extra time. The Barcelona president, Enrique Pinheiro, was out by August, having the legacy of being president when Barcelona had to change its name and represent Franco Spain. For someone who allegedly knew nothing about sport coming in, Pinheiro did at least form the handball, baseball, and cycling teams. So at least that's something. And he also worked to get exiled sportsmen back to Spain, including leading goal scorer Escola. But let's get back to that game. A hostile football atmosphere is one thing, but you get the sense that the hostility was much more than just football. This was intimidation that felt like it was coming from the top down in Spain. And not only did Barcelona players feel that pressure, but so did referee Celestino Rodriguez. 11-1 makes you feel like the players had reason to fear for more than just a loss. As Sid Lowe said, it is not a result that has been particularly celebrated in Madrid. Indeed, the 11-1 occupies a far more prominent role in Barcelona's history. This was the game that first formed the identification of Madrid as a team of the dictatorship and Barcelona as its victims. 
The best quote from the aftermath, though, came from backup Barca goalkeeper Fernando Arguila. He said there was no rivalry, not at least until that game. Congratulations, you. You finally got to the end. And a big, 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 big thank you to Robbie for going on this big, grand iceberg adventure with me and taking on what was a gigantic project for the two of us. I really hope that his viewers, my viewers and listeners, and maybe some new Kool-Aids or just football fans who love history enjoyed all of this. You can follow Robbie on his YouTube channel and make sure to keep up with everything I got going on with the podcast, the YouTube channel, subscribe if you want already, the Patreon, merch store, social media, the whole nine yards. And as always, most importantly, especially for the Kool-Aid that went up and all the way down the iceberg, Forza Barca. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com